Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/spoken today. Children of the night, I hope you've had a happy Christmas. We've been moving east from Chicago towards our new home in Old Dominion. I've detoured us a bit for our last stop in West Virginia before dipping into the Commonwealth. We find ourselves in Fayetteville on Christmas Eve of 1945 in the home of George and Jenny Sauter and their ten children. Jenny was woken just past midnight by a ringing phone, only to answer it to hear the voice of a woman asking for the name of someone who didn't live there. Laugh, then silence on the line. At around one thirty a.m., she is woken again by the sound of something on the roof, and then she realized that the house is on fire. She called out for her husband and children to escape the house. Five of the ten children do not make it out, and the fire burns the house down in a mere 45 minutes. After the fire, witnesses reported seeing the children allegedly lost in the fire, an excavation of the home revealed very few of the remains that should have been found, including bones that appeared to have no traces of damage from fire. Twenty-three years after the fire, George Sauter received a picture in the mail of a young man with the words, Louis Sauter, Love Brother Frankie, LL Boys, and A90132. 90132 is not a valid zip code in the USA, but is the postal code for... Palermo, Italy. The case is unsolved and largely uninvestigated. If you're interested in the details and mysteries of this story that I did not include, I'd recommend the piece on NPR's All Things Considered that was done about seven years ago. Link will be in the show notes. Let's move on to our fiction for the night. We have a poem and two stories. Carol Smallwood co-edited Women on Poetry, Writing, Revising, Publishing, and Teaching, of McFarland Press 2012, on the list of best books for writers by Poets and Writers magazine, 
Women Writing on Family, Tips on Writing, Teaching, and Publishing, Key Publishing House 2012, Compartments, Poems on Nature, Femininity, and Other Realms, Anaphora Literary Press 2011. Received a Pushcart nomination, Carol has founded Supports Humane Societies. And now, Smallwood's Dante's Circles. Dante's Circles by Carol Smallwood 1. Mary Shelley's Matilda summed it, being struck off from humanity. To tell was disrespectful, adoption obligates. It was Dr. Bradford who said, You'll no longer be burdened. 2. I'd written my oldest relative first about Uncle Walt. She advised begging God's forgiveness. Another asked, how could you say such a thing? 3. My next step was telling Aunt Hester. I've wanted to tell you many times about Uncle Walt. He didn't treat me as a child. Aunt Hester's mouth formed its bad taste lines to say, We always took you to church. 4. I don't know if I would have told Mark if it wasn't for fear of seeing my granddaughter's hamster circling a cage. 5. Mark emailed. I don't remember much except Dad yelling. 6. But I was Mark and Jenny's age when the circles no longer held. Wouldn't it help them to know? Truth said to set one free. 7. I told Jenny when driving, my eyes on the road. Did anyone else believe it happened? she asked. It was the first time she heard me swear, Dr. Bradford's definition of suppressed rage. 8. Could I'd done too good a job of hiding things? Uncle Walt said, You show as much emotion as a stone. 9. Dante's Ninth Circle is Made of Ice That was Carol Smallwood's Dante's Circles. And her first story of the night will be Sarah Ranke's Periphery People. Definitely an author to watch. That's how Romantic Times Book Reviews magazine describes Sarah Ranke, who writes paranormal romance, horror, urban fantasy, and other things that go bump in the night. New York Times bestselling author Karen Roberts calls Ranke a new paranormal star, and Love, Romances, and More hails her as a fresh new voice to a genre that has grown stale. Find out more about Ranke and her books at www.sarahranke.com. Link will be in the show notes. Yesterday, upon the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. The man at the bar said to me, nursing a fresh two fingers worth of kettle vodka in a tumbler he cradled between his thick, calloused fingers. He wasn't there again today. Oh, how I wish he'd go away, I answered, drawing his sleepy but surprised gaze from the basin of his drink. Antigonish by William Hughes Mernt. That's what you were quoting, right? He studied me for a moment, as if seeing me for the first time and trying to size me up. Most of the terminal drunks who typically dragged their sorry carcasses into the tavern this time of the night 
amused themselves by ogling my tits or hitting me with slurred promises of unimaginable sexual pleasure. Not this guy. John was his name. His first name, anyway. Or at least that's what he'd told me. I didn't know his last one. Didn't really care. When he said nothing, I rolled my eyes and turned away, grabbing beer mugs off a drying rack by the sink beneath the bar and mopping beads of residual water away with a hand towel. Forget it, I muttered. Why try to carry on an intelligent conversation, much less a literary one, with someone who'd pretty much polished off a fifth of vodka all on his own, all in less than two hours? What's your name? he said. Mel, I replied. Short for Melanie. No one calls me that except my dad. He'd asked me this before, and I'd answered him the same. I waited to see if there was any dawn of recognition in his face at the words. Wasn't the least bit surprised when there wasn't. You drink, Meg? he asked. He called me Meg every time, too. I held up the mug in one hand, the towel in the other. Gave both demonstrative little shakes. Not while I'm on duty. I didn't tell him I never drank, because my old man was a drunk and even though he'd been clean and sober for seven years now. Once upon a time, he'd like to get into the pap's blue ribbon and then slap me and my mother around for shits and grins. I had never tasted alcohol. I worked in the bar so I would never forget it, the hot stink of booze on his breath, and how much I still hated him for that. John nodded once, fingered his glass again, and tossed back the entire dollop in a solitary swallow. That's good, he told me his gaze wandering distantly toward a nearby pale water ring stained into the top of the bar. I wish I'd never started. Maybe then they'd leave me alone. I glanced around the pub. It was a Tuesday, almost midnight, almost closing time. Besides John on his barstool perch before me, the place was pretty much empty. A couple of kids with greasy hair and too many crude tattoos to have earned them any place but prison loafed in a far corner, shooting pool and drinking beer. They had one girl between them, a bleach blonde, in a too tight denim miniskirt, who didn't seem to mind the two-to-one odds. Figuring, what the fuck, I had nothing better to do, I took the bait and walked back over to John. He had that cast in his eyes, a tone in his voice that my chronic drunks sometimes affect when they want to get nostalgic or wax rhapsodical. Maybe who would leave you alone, I asked. Probably his family, his old lady and kids. He was wearing a wedding ring. Old ladies, kids, and chronic alcoholism. Seldom mixed company amicably. He looked at me. The periphery people. I blinked at him, wondering if I'd heard him right. The who? Still, he studied me, his gaze unwavering. Surprisingly steady, in fact given the amount of booze he'd been knocking back that night. Periphery people, he said again, pronouncing the words slowly, carefully, as if each was a delicate crystal vase he was trying to swaddle in newspaper before packing away in a box in the attic. Although, they're not really people. Not like you and me. I don't know what the hell they are. He blinked, his eyes growing cloudy again, and he looked away, Never mind, you can't see them. Again, because I had nothing better to do, and because I was actually caught off guard by both his poem quotation and his use of a functional vocabulary word not typical of the common lexicon, I leaned comfortably across the bar. 
Why can't I see them? You have to be drunk, he replied. Or at least I do anymore. Didn't used to. I could see them just fine on my own when I was a kid. I think kids are more receptive to seeing them. They believe in things, you know. Like Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. Or periphery people, I supplied, and he nodded. The periphery of what? John flapped his hand, indicating the room. Here. There. Everywhere. Everything. They're always around. Standing in the shadows. All along the edges. The periphery, I said. Yeah. He lifted his glass to his lips, then he realized he had no more vodka. So they're here right now. As he set the glass down, I reached for the kettle bottle and topped him off. Yeah. Nodding to me in thanks, he took a small sip, smacked his lips appreciatively, and drank again. You said they weren't human. What do they look like? He shrugged. They're tall. Really tall. Like seven or eight feet high. They wear cloaks. Hooded cloaks. The cowls cover their heads. Cloaks. Cowls. Periphery and poetry. I was beginning to wonder if this guy, John, wasn't your typical chronic drunk at all, but something more tragic. I made a show of glancing around, brows raised. There were plenty of shadow-draped edges and corners in the dump where I worked. Not a one of them seemed to be harboring a seven-foot-tall, giant, hooded man with a cowl over his face. You can't see them, he told me, because I'm sober. Yeah, but they're hideous. He shuddered, though whether from this admittance or the drink, I wasn't sure. Their faces are flat. There's nothing there. No eyes, no nose. Only a mouth, round and gaping, taking up almost the whole front side. Ringed with teeth. God, lots and lots of teeth. Rows of them, going backward down their throats, just like a shark. The color drained somewhat from his face, leaving him with a sort of putty-colored pallor. They like to eat, you see. Maybe it was the unspoken body language that seemed to suggest this poor son of a bitch was really buying the snow cone machine he was selling to the Eskimos. Whatever the reason, I found myself simply staring at him and fighting the urge to shiver. Eat what? I asked, my voice uncharacteristically small. His expression shifted, growing grim, his eyes round and earnest. He whispered one word in reply to me. Souls. I'd expected him to say human flesh, maybe even brains, or perhaps spleen, appendix, right little toe. This, however, caught me by surprise. Souls, I asked. They latch onto the back of your head with their teeth. Then they wrap themselves around you, making you carry them around like that while they glut themselves. Sometimes they take a little, sometimes they take a lot depends on how hungry they are. The cracked vinyl seat cover beneath his ass creaked as he shifted his weight, pivoting to glance behind them. With a nod, he pointed out the menage a trois in situ, playing pool. You see that girl over there? Yeah. Turning in the seat again, he leaned across the bar toward me. 
close enough for me to smell the vodka in his breath. One of them's feeding on her right now. I took another look, but saw only the blonde laughing, slapping away one of the guy's hands as he tried clumsily, vainly, to grope the generous outward swell of her ass. She looks okay to me, I said, because you can't see it, and she can't feel it. Not yet, anyway. But she will. John nodded. One day, yeah. She'll find out she has cancer. Or AIDS. Or maybe she'll step off the curb at the wrong time and get plowed into by a bus. Or have a psychotic break and shove a seven-inch-long butcher knife through her husband's sternum while he's sleeping one night. But not at first. That comes later. I've seen it. No. At first, she'll just be sad. Sad? I repeated this, brow raised. You ever feel like everything in the world's gone wrong? Like you can't do anything right? Like the world is nothing but a big pile of dog shit, and you're just a smear in the fecal matter taking up space? That kind of sadness, that sort of despair, that's what they leave you with once they've eaten enough of your soul. From there, it only gets worse, because that sorrow, that unhappiness, it must smell good to them, draw them somehow. They're always with you after that, like a pack of wolves, fighting over you for their chance to latch onto your skull and drain you dry. I've been tending bar for a long time, for seven years, starting about the time my mother had died, and my dad had first sworn on her deathbed that he'd go clean and then had shocked the glorious ever-living shit out of me by sticking to that. I've heard a lot of stories, yarns woven by a lot of guys far more wasted and crazy and pathetic than John. But for some reason, I couldn't just bob my head and cock that condescending smirk that I usually reserve for someone shit-faced and rambling. The in-one-ear-and-out-the-other look, I call it. They've fed from you, you know, he told me pointedly. I felt a chill steal down my spine, slithering and unnerving, like a live eel dropped down the back of my t-shirt. Managing a hoarse bark of laughter, trying my damnedest to sound dubious, I said, What? He nodded. How can you tell? His eyes found mine, round, sorrowful, nearly sheepish. You knew the poem. You haven't always been a barmaid. Normally, that antiquated and decidedly misogynistic term, barmaid, might have made me bristle. But this time, instead, it only sent another of those unpleasant little tremors racing down from the nape of my neck toward my ass. No, I said in slow admittance. I was a teacher. English literature. High school. World civilization, he said, by way of introducing himself in ex-career fellowship at the university, had tenure and everything. We studied each other for a long, quiet moment. Something happened, he said. Something that changed you. Maybe a moment you can't quite put your finger on, or remember. But it's there. And in that moment, whether you knew it or not, a part of your soul was gone. My mother died, I said. My dad's on disability. He can't get around. I have to be home in the daytime with him. There's no one else who can take care of him. Feels like your life's being sucked right out of you sometimes, doesn't it? John asked, and when I nodded, hesitant, 
the corners of his mouth hooked in a brief, bitter smile. Because it is. A glance beyond my shoulder, split second, but pointed. There's one behind you right now. I whirled, eyes wide, but saw only rows of liquor bottles and phalanxes of cocktail glasses lined up dutifully along the shelves. It's not feeding, he continued. Not yet, anyway. But it wants to. And there's only one way to stop it. How? I asked. As ridiculous as this whole thing sounded, I couldn't help but believe him. There was such a tremendous, sorrowful sincerity in his face, his eyes. It was as if all of the booze had been wiped from his system and he was sober again, brutally, helplessly so. He leaned toward me. You have to see them. His hand draped against mine, his skin dry and warm. If you can see them, they'll leave you alone. Another fleeting, humorless smirk. No sport in it for them then. As he drew back his hand, he shifted on his stool again, letting his feet fall heavily to the floor. I shook my head as if snapping out of a trance. For the first time, I realized we were alone in the bar. The trio of pool players, along with their invisible, soul-sucking new friend, had left. You ever see movement out of the corner of your eye? John asked, fishing his wallet from his back pocket and dropping a pair of twenties onto the bar. His glass still had vodka in it, but he left it alone, turning with a shuffling gait for the door. A flash of a shadow, maybe, like something's there just beyond your field of sight. Only when you turn your head, it's gone. I nodded, and he said, That's them, the periphery people. He started to walk away, but paused when I said, What about you? You said something changed in me, the moment where one of these things fed from me. What about your moment? What changed you? He looked over his shoulder at me, and this time when he smiled, it was something melancholy and lonely. His lips pursed, then parted, as if he meant to speak, but then he must have thought better of it because he closed them again. Still shuffling the palsied gait of a man far older than his years, John turned again and walked away, leaving the bar without another word. I locked up behind him, the heavy sound of the deadbolt sliding home as I turned the key as sharp and loud as a gunshot. I tried to laugh it off, to tell myself he was just a crazy drunk, that he'd been spewing vodka-infused bullshit he wouldn't even remember come the morning. But then, as I started to turn away from the door to face the bar again, I thought I caught a glimpse of something reflected in the glass, a looming shadow directly behind me standing just along the peripheral edge of my vision. With a startled gasp, my heart jackhammering in sudden bright fear, I whirled around, pressing myself back into the door. I was alone, at least to my sober eye. There's one behind you right now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. He told me, it's not feeding. Not yet, anyway. But it wants to. I thought of how he'd described them. Their ghoulish mouths ringed with teeth so they could latch on and hold tight. Again, I wanted to dismiss it, and him, as utter bullshit. And again, I couldn't suppress an uneasy shiver just the same. There's only one way to stop it, John had told me. You have to see them. I returned to the bar and stood beside the seat he'd only recently vacated. His last shot of kettle remained where he'd left it. And I reached for it now, lifting the glass in hand, giving it an experimental sniff. I'd never tried vodka before, had felt neither the urge nor desire to drink myself into a stupor. If you can see them, they'll leave you alone. No sport in it for them then. Bracing myself, I drew the glass to my lips, tossed my head back, and swallowed. Having drained it dry, I leaned forward, poured another, and downed it, then a third, then a fourth. And after the fifth, as my mind started to grow murky, and the shadows in every corner of the room seemed to grow elongated and sinister somehow before my eyes, becoming nearly human in shape, creeping closer to me. Slowly but surely, I took a seat on the bar stool and waited to see. That was Sarah Ranke's Periphery People, as read to us by our old friend Antoinette Bergen. Antoinette Bergen is twisted and dark, sarcastic and pessimistic, weird and demented. All these things combine somehow to make her absolutely adorable. She is the author of Bedtime Stories for Children You Hate, and has been known to mail packages of lime jello to people she deems worthy. She can be found on Twitter as at Nettie underscore Bergen and probably won't harm you if you follow her. Our second story of the night is from Bryn Forte, a veteran of the 1970s British glory years of horror anthologies. Bryn Forte's most recent appearance was in the Alchemy Press Book of Ancient Wonders, 2012, has two stories in Shadow Publishing's Horror Under the Tombstones, First Words is a slightly rewritten version of a story which first appeared in a small press booklet, The Jazz Files, in 2006. And now, Bryn Forte's First Words. The William Burroughs Round Trip Grub Fest. Miss it and let the Yage experience remain untried. The Beat Hotel unlived in. The Methadone Program unsigned for. Miss it and be forever square. Texas for breakfast, Mexico City for lunch, Tangiers for high tea, Paris for dinner, 
London for supper, New York for a midnight snack. Call him William S. or Old Bull Lee, but don't deny the truth of his warning that tomorrow's catastrophe is embedded within the causation of both yesterday and today. Remember, the truth is not fiction, but not all offered as truth will be real. Call him a saint. Call him a prophet. Call him dog muck on the sole of a well-heeled size 10, but don't call him late for medication. Soon Old Bull Lee will tinkle the William Tell Overture, and then you'll really know the blues. You get my meaning, muchacho? Jazz, rock, soul, funk, none of it would be worth a donkey's fart without that all-important blues overlap, the chemistry from which it all evolved. Read the words, hear the chords, feel the power. You get my meaning, brother? Meanwhile, Jack Kerouac's ghost sat in an upstairs room leafing through a Sartori catalog, saying, There are more fucking books about me than I actually wrote. The world caught up, Jack, explained Bobby Kent. You may have died a 47-year-old drunk who most publishers wouldn't pass the time of day with, but you're an all-time literary great now. Kerouac lifted phantom eyes to heaven. Bastards, he muttered with feeling. If they'd taken me that seriously when I was still alive, maybe I wouldn't have poured so much booze down my throat. Tough, Jack. Tough indeed. It seemed to Kent that this should be when the ghostly figure started to fade, but Kerouac was looking past him into the far corner of the room, asking, And who might you be? Jack's ghost was staring at me, which was not in the storyline. Don't pretend you're not there, he continued. I can see you. I'm the writer, I finally replied. The writer? You're the writer? Bobby Kent, unsure of his role in this new situation, backed slowly out of the room. Think I'd better rejoin the party, he said, and was gone. I'm not the writer, Jack, I said, alone now with the ghost. But I am the author of this particular piece of... I paused and shrugged. Well... Whatever. So what's your name, Mr. Author? Bryn Fortney. And are you one of my belatedly acquired fans? Absolutely, I said quickly. I'm even utilizing your spontaneous writing technique in this very story. Not that my work could ever be mentioned in the same breath as yours. Don't undersell yourself. Maybe not, but facts have to be faced. Kerouac's ghost was starting to fade. Just keep writing, he said, his voice getting fainter. Wow, it was time to get my story back on track. Bobby Kent, now downstairs, sighed deeply, realizing he had missed an opportunity to get Kerouac to sign his copy of On the Road, though maybe the ink would have proved no more substantial than the ghost itself. The party typically was full of noise, Miranda, laughing and dancing, tried to catch his eye, but he turned away and crossed to where Piano Boy was hammering sharp-edged jazzed chords into a frosty permutation of splintered glass. The kid was so cold he was hot. Kent stood there, letting the notes pierce his flesh and mind, letting the random intervals blur whatever stood outside the manic dot-dot dashing of the tonal summary on offer. The kid was cold like ice. The kid was hot like fire. The piano sparked with electric surge at every finger contact. What was he doing here, playing at Miranda's boozy, druggy party? He would turn up, play some, drink a little, maybe chat, then wander off. All themes explored, the number climaxed, ended, and the kid got up from the piano, 
being immediately replaced by someone who stomped off on a boogie beat. "'Your articulation at speed is phenomenal,' said Kent. "'You should be doing it for a living.' Piano Boy just smiled. "'No, I mean it,' Kent continued. "'Though for all I know, maybe you are a professional.' "'But if you are, then why are you playing for nothing in a dump like this?' "'It's not so bad. It's not the Ritz. "'Come on, let's get a drink.' Piano Boy opened a can of lager while Kent poured himself a large brandy. "'Do you know,' said the kid, watching the dancers, "'that gorillas often sing in the wild?' "'No, I didn't know that. But not in captivity. Maybe they don't know any sad songs.' The boogie beat blazed while Miranda spun and twisted from partner to partner. "'She sure can move,' said the kid. Kent nodded. "'Our hostess,' he said a little bitterly. "'Miranda, the morphine lady.' A strange nickname. It's said she can magic away your pain and discomfort. But is she addictive as the name suggests? Kent smiled ruefully. There's always a downside, he said. But the upside had been worth it. Theirs had been a turbulent and riotous relationship at every level. They could have written a manual. But being merely terrific was not good enough for him, not when perfection beckoned. Miranda was a girl of many faults, and one of them was in being too honest. "'Oh, you are good, Bobby Kent,' she'd told him. "'But you are not quite Superman, and I'm not Lois Lane.' "'I'm not a professional,' said Piano Boy, interrupting Kent's private musings. "'I play for my need and enjoyment. "'So what do you do?' "'I'm a music therapist.' Kent thought about that. But when he turned to ask just what the job entailed, the kid was gone and nowhere to be seen. Disappeared like Kerouac's ghost. How Monkeys See the World, Inside the Mind of Another Species, by Dorothy L. Cheney and Robert Sayforth. Bonobo, The Forgotten Ape, by F. M. DeWall. In the Mind of an Ape, by David and Anne Premick. The Singing Gorilla, by George Page. Kanzi, The Ape at the Brink of the Human Mind, by Sue Savage Rumbaugh and Roger Lewin. Apes, Language, and the Human Mind, by Sue Savage Rumbaugh, Stuart Shanker, and Talbot Taylor. Peter Angelico had read all the books he could find that seemed applicable, but had felt none the wiser at the end. He was young, relatively inexperienced, and in over his head. Professor Frost was not much help either. We've tried a thisopist and a thatopist and got nowhere, so I suppose a music therapist might as well throw his hat in the ring, the project director had said on Angelico's first day. The site was still officially called the National Primate Research Center, but the internal grassland and wooded areas were now encircled by high concrete walls, and there was only a single investigation being currently undertaken the Gorilla Vocalization Project. Back in the 1950s, a chimpanzee named Vicky managed to learn a few vocal words of English, but that was all, explained Professor Frost. An ape's phonetic apparatus is poorly adapted for what we refer to as speech. When this was realized, attention shifted to the teaching of sign language, then the manipulation of symbolic plastic chips, followed by training on a keyboard system. All had some successes, but not to the level wanted. We now know that our anthropoid brethren have the potential for advancement. The brain is a fantastically sophisticated carbon-based computer, and theirs can be upgraded. 
Accepting this moves the question out of the category of mysteries and into one of problems. The answer is speech. But I thought you said... started Angelo, but Frost waved him into silence. We have three pairs of mountain gorillas in the compound, he continued. All have had their vocal cords surgically engineered to enable them to cope with human language. All have been given every opportunity to learn sufficient English for basic communication. Yet none of the six will utter a single word. It was no wonder that Peter Angelico sometimes felt a need for a break from the center. Felt the need to just be piano boy for a few hours. Music had not featured much in primate studies up till now, as far as he could tell. There had been the case of Michael at the California Gorilla Foundation, who listened to Pavarotti for hour after hour, tapping in time, completely mesmerized, but little else. Gorillas themselves were said to sing in the wild, usually after a heavy thunderstorm when the rainforest air smelt crisp and sweet, but never in captivity. Professor Frost looked down his hawk-like nose and spoke in his best tutorial manner. After seeing an ape in London, Samuel Pepys wrote in his diary entry on 24th August 1661, I do believe it already understands much English, and I am of the mind it might be taught to speak or make signs. Well, the six gorillas we have here have attended their lessons daily most willingly and offer rapt attention throughout. I am of the mind that they have indeed been taught to speak, and we know they're physically able to, but they won't say a single word. I think they're laughing at us and talk when alone. We've tried bugging the woods and their quarters, but they found everyone and destroyed them. Frost closed his eyes, took a couple of deep breaths, and looked again at Angelico. Do your best, Mr. Therapist. Play your music and see if you can get any discussion going on crochet and quaver issues. But you don't think I'll succeed, do you? The professor shook his head slowly. Frankly, no, he said. Your expertise is to use music as a curative treatment, but these gorillas are not sick. The behaviorist branch of psychology argue that animals have no minds, and to think otherwise is mere anthropomorphism. Not only are they wrong anyway, but in the case of our six animals, they're doubly wrong. If there is thought, there is emotion. If there is pain, there is suffering. Look into their deep, far-seeing eyes when you meet them. When we've done has already placed them far beyond their rainforest cousins. They know what is happening, but are playing by their own rules, for their own ends. The gaunt spectral presence of the strange Dr. Benway helped enhance the odd party-of-the-doomed atmosphere. The deals, the cut-ups, the fold-ins, the ovens, the deaths. Miranda knew that Bobby Kent's manic need for perfection had oblivion written all over it, and it worried her that she was worried about him. Kerouac's ghost, meanwhile, knocked back booze like it was going out of fashion. "'Where's that forty guy?' he muttered, gently slurring the words. "'Putting me in a talking monkey story. "'I'll sue him for every last dime. Yeah, "'That pianist sure is fractured.' "'Peter Angelico, piano boy, played cut-ups with the keyboards, "'ripping up what was left of the rule book and shredding the pieces. "'Professor Frost had been right. "'Those Anna... "'No, he couldn't think of them as animals anymore. "'Those gorilla people knew just what was going on.' They still wouldn't speak, but they sure knew how to respond on a non-vocal level. Bobby Kent wilted under the relentless pressure of the kid's attack. The density, the speed, the underlying nagging worry. He should be on a concert stage, somewhere with a proper audience. Not here. 
The jangling notes drew him into a face-to-face confrontation with himself, seeing anew the cracked mirror image within his being. Kent felt both uplifted and downgraded at the same time. Angelico alternately pounded the keys, then stroked them. He'd played the gorillas' popular music, but their interest had only been superficial. I've been put under considerable departmental pressure, the professor had complained. Don't ask me which department. There are covert government groupings involved, and I can say no more except the future of funding is being seriously looked at. Angelico played them classical music, which did seem to interest them more, though only on an intellectual level. If we don't start showing practical results soon, our funding is going to end and the project closed down. They're not going to keep pouring millions down the drain without an end product in sight. Angelico tried jazz, and suddenly the response seemed emotional. The gorillas tapped fingers to the rhythm, closed their eyes, rocked to and fro. He played samples from New Orleans to avant-garde. Armstrong, Bassey, Parker, Coltrane all hit the spot. Cecil Taylor held their attention. Bessie Smith rocked their souls. Angelico knew the music was getting through, but still they would not speak. I can understand interest from the scientific community, he said to Frost. But why is the government pouring millions into this? Don't ask. But I am. Frost waved his stick arms in jerky motions. Can't you imagine it? Talking chimpanzees, talking bonobos, talking orangutans. A new underclass. They're for the taking. Carrying out all the low, dirty tasks beneath our human dignity. Can't you imagine units of talking gorillas and baboons in our armed forces? Angelico could imagine it. He'd been going to take in a keyboard and play them his own music, but here he was instead, at Miranda's place, pouring all his mixed-up feelings into his piano boy persona. Maybe they knew what was being planned. Maybe that was why they wouldn't speak. Later, drinking again with Bobby Kent, he became more and more agitated. Of course they have power and strength, he said, but there's a gentility and wisdom that shines through their eyes. There's an age-old perfection in their bearing. There's so much more than just infantry fodder. If they have perfection, then go for it, offered Kent, his brandy-fueled yearning. Seek it out. Seek it out as I sought the ultimate experience, advised the conglomerated Burroughs Lee Benway spirit. Seek out the truth that waits at the end of the road, suggested Kerouac's ghost. Don't miss out, shouted Kent as Miranda led him away. The morphine lady would cure his ills and learn to lie a little if necessary. I won't, whispered Piano Boy. He'd always search for truth in his music. Now he would do the same with his life. It was the first time Angelico had gone to the center at night, but his clearance status got him through all the checks and into the compound. There were a number of wooded areas dotted in the grassland, but he knew which one to make for. The one with the large central clearing contained the timber dormitory building where they slept. It was as if he were being called. Either there was something momentous about to burst, or it was the drink doing silly things with his head. Too late to think now. All he could do was stagger and crash his way through the trees and darkness in a desperate search for answers, even though he didn't fully understand the questions. Then, suddenly, he was there, at the clearing's edge. The large dormitory building was silent, unlit, and Angelico began to worry that maybe there was nothing here for him at all. He crouched, waiting for what seemed an eternity. Then, without warning, 
it began. First came the gentle rhythmic tapping of fingers, soon joined by irregular wood-on-wood patterns, until the whole thing evolved into a throbbing, crashing, brilliant percussive ensemble that drove itself through every fiber until even his sinews responded, prompting him to stand. Angelico started to move toward the building, but stopped dead when the singing started. A low thunder of a voice that caught his heart in a vice. I woke up this morning and heard what the boss man said, sang a voice full of pain and hurt. The tom-tom beats raged behind the singer. I woke up this morning and thought I might be better dead. Then Angelico was running, hands over ears, trying to blot it out. It was a new blues, still with the suffering of the old but with new dimensions filling him with guilt and shame. Peter Angelico, piano boy, staggered through the trees. He had heard the future, and it filled him with dread. And that was Bryn Forte's first words as read to us by Logan Waterman. Logan has a degree in technical theater from California State University and has worked in many theaters, large and small, professional and amateur. He had also worked for Apple Computers, sold hot tubs and comic books, and prepared court documents. He has taught sword fighting for the stage and run lights for a local band until they broke up. He currently works tangentially for the legal system, watches a lot of science fiction television, listens to a lot of podcasts, and reads a lot of science fiction novels and comic books. He hopes to make a bit of money from voice acting and narration someday. Logan currently lives in Northern California with Grendel, a huge black beast whose primary occupations are sleeping and stalking the fish aquarium, and Morgana, a small fluffy queen who rules her domain with an iron paw. The fish remain unimpressed. And that will be our show for the week. I hope your Christmas treated you well, and we'll see you again next week for New Year's Eve. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. On Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.